follow that up, but let's, let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Your word is relevant to those who lived in the first century and the centuries previous to that. It has been relevant to those who lived in all of the centuries between that time and now, and it's relevant to us, to even the next generation. Because your word, Lord, is eternal. It is true. It is accurate. It is worth more than all the gold and silver that can be mined in this world. So, Lord, we pray as we look into your word that we might not just hear it with our ears, but we might see it the ways in which it needs to be applied to our individual lives. So, Holy Spirit, would you do that, we pray. And we give it to you in Christ's name. Amen. What a blessing Joyce and I had on our way up to Maine last week for the ordination uh, service for Ron Plasinski. Of course, we stopped by and had to see our grandson again. And so what a great time it is to hang out with him, get to know him. And again, you have to remember now, spending time with a little infant is something I haven't done. We haven't done for a little while because uh, our youngest was born in 1990. So here we are dealing with a little infant again, and it's great. Uh, one thing you notice about being with a little infant, and I sort of forgot this, the number of times that his clothes were changed in a 24-hour period of time. It's unbelievable. Uh, I mean, he starts off with this blue outfit, as cute as can be, and then soon thereafter, a couple hours later, he's wearing now the Batman onesie he's got on, you know, and so take a couple pictures with that on. Then a little while later, he's wearing a blue and white outfit, and, a, and then he's got a sleeper on with green, and it's got little bunnies on it. And, I mean, just one thing after the other, and this is all one day, and you're like, are his parents trying to use him as a, like part of making a fashion statement? You know, is that why they're doing all this? And you say to yourself, no, 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 no. The reason why, he is cute no matter what he wears, but the reason why is because the routine of changing him so often is because he has soiled his clothes. We won't go into details, but I mean, that's what babies do, right? And so the messy clothes come off once he's messed them up, and then he gets cleaned up, and then guess what? Here we go with the nice, clean clothes on the clean little baby. Put off, put on. Again, repeat again. If you have a little infant, it gets, it's just repetitive. The basic idea is this. Off with soiled clothes, we get rid of those. They need to be laundered. And on with the clean clothes on a clean child. Now let me transition and try to make the connection here. Followers of Jesus Christ, we also are to adopt this idea of a put-off and put-on regiment. Before we came to Christ in repentance and faith, we were a people who were characterized, in a sense we were clothed with, I would say, corruption. We were full of pride, we were people who were easily rebelling against whatever authority we didn't like over us. We were people who were disobedient and resentful. We were also had abusive speech for some of us as a regular course, just to name a few. And what was going on at that time was our outward behavior was revealing what our hearts were like. You see in Ephesians 4, if you got that open in front of you there, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 18 19 talks about there's a hardened, calloused, heart that we used to have before we came to Christ. 
But when we're regenerated by God's Spirit, when, we're, when our hearts are changed, at that time, we have new hearts, new affections, new desires, and therefore it makes perfect sense that we would want to change our clothes, in a sense, the outward parts of our lives that people see around us. And so we go from having the inward change of having changing in our attitudes, changing in our thought life, and then there's the outward change in what we do and what we say. Now, for every true child of God, there is this process of putting off and putting on. And this morning, we're now looking at the second part of a sermon I started two weeks ago, talking about the ongoing battle we have against sin. It is a battle. And it's a battle that, go, that keeps on going. And then last uh, couple weeks ago, we noticed that we are to put to death sin. We're not to play games with it. We're not to, to cuddle it, we're, coddle it. We're, we're to put it to death. That is, take decisive action against it. We use the term mortification. And you get mortuary and mortician from the word that means to put to death. Today we're considering the other side of that coin. The idea of cultivating Christian virtues. The idea of growing in grace toward maturity. These are two sides of the same coin of what we call sanctification. So today we're going to look at three principles from Ephesians 4. So I hope you have your Bible in front of you. You hope you have your screen on to Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to find three principles. We're going to boil it down to three things. Here's what we're going to look at. Number one, we're going to clarify our expectations. Secondly, we're going to realign our motivations. And thirdly, we're going to apply to our lives the truth of God. Those are three things. First of all, clarify our expectations. Now, when it comes to the, living the Christian life, some people, I'm convinced, have unrealistically high expectations of themselves. Of themselves. They think that now they've been forgiven, now that they are granted the status of being a child of God, dearly loved by God, that they've won their battle against sin. It's done. They wrongly assume that now that they've been made alive in Christ, they will no longer struggle against using foul language. They'll no longer struggle with lying or they'll no longer struggle with stealing or doing dishonest things or lusting in their heart in a sexual way or whatever it is. They think that somehow, oh, that's all done with because now I'm a new person, right? The old is gone, the new has come. Wait a minute. If we had the habit of cursing before we were saved, it's not going to be too surprising that when we get frustrated or when we hit our thumb with a hammer, that what comes out of our mouth, it may be indeed the same thing we used to say, because what? Habits die hard. Habits die hard. Now, I mentioned several weeks ago, we talked about the two aspects of sanctification. One is, we said, positional sanctification, which happens one time. We are set apart unto God. It's instantaneous. When we came to faith, when we regenerated by God's Spirit, we are set apart. We belong to, to God when we repent and confess Christ as Lord. But the other aspect of holiness and sanctification, what we call it, is progressive sanctification. It's something that continues on as a process. And so a believer is to undergo this gradual changing process as part of our sanctification, to become more holy in our choices, more holy in our thought life, more holy in our aspirations. 
Now, when I was in elementary school, I have vivid memories of joining a basketball team, a league actually, at the YMCA in downtown Charleston where I grew up. And so we would appear, uh, we go down there and on Saturday my parents signed me up and guess what, I'm on the team. Just by signing up, boom, I'm on the team, they give me a uniform and here we go. Now, does that mean I know how to play the game? Not really. So the whole time I'm down there on, on the different times we would appear for practice and then games is that I had a lot of learning to stop doing some things I naturally did. First thing the coach said is, listen, he says, all right guys, when you got the ball, you do not look at the guy you're going to pass the ball to. I'm thinking, what? Because I've always thought, are you ready? You ready to get the ball? Here you go. You know, I'm going to pass you the ball. And he said, no, don't do that. He said, look this way and pass to this guy. Okay, all right, that took me a while to learn that one. That's just unnatural, right? And then he tells you, listen, don't double dribble. Don't dribble around, stop, and then hold the ball, then start dribbling again. Can't do that anymore. I had to stop doing that. And he says, and stop throwing the ball from way outside. We used to call them air ball shots from downtown. Don't do that. Just wait to get closer before you shoot. So there's a lot of things I had to stop doing. Then he taught me the proper way to do things, the proper way to do a bounce pass, the proper way to set a screen, the proper positions you play on, the, on, a, on a team, which takes a while to learn that stuff. So what's the point? It's a long process. I had to learn to stop doing certain things. I had to learn to do things correctly in order to play the game on a team. And if I was still playing basketball, which I don't do much of that anymore, but if I did, I would still be learning because there's some things you still need to, to gain skills and abilities as you play, improving your game. So if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, is it your expectation are you still expecting, is it still something that you're aware of in your life currently that you must undergo this, this ongoing process that's still happening in your life of put off and put on, of becoming more like Christ? If you look at chapter 4, verse 23, Ephesians 4, 23, notice he says, you are being renewed in the spirit of your mind. That's literally how it's translated. It has a sense of continuous. You are being renewed. That's something that's ongoing. And so that's an expectation I hope you have if you are a believer. You shouldn't think you've already arrived. But secondly, when it comes to expectations, some of us have expectations that are unrealistic expectations about God's role in your pursuit of holy living. Some of us assume that God does everything for us. You know, there's nothing really that's required of me. I just need to let go and let God. Have you ever heard that phrase? Let go and let God. Sounds nice. Yes, we should surrender to God like we sang earlier. But listen, this text in Ephesians 4 indicates that there are commands here. There are um, exhortations given by Paul saying you need to do some things here in light of the response of doing battle against sin in your life. God's not going to do it for you. You'll notice that we are responsible here to put off verse 22 of Ephesians 4 and then verse 24 says put on. Those are commands, right? We're to replace sinful habits and behaviors with actions and attitudes that conform to the will of God. 
Now, if you turn a couple pages over to Philippians 2, it's a very interesting text that shows you the balance that we must find when it comes to relying on God, because we do need God's help, but also being responsible to do what God calls us to do. Philippians 2, verses 12 and 13, by the way, removes any excuse that some of us have of saying, well, you know, God's going to take care of this, so I'm just going to sit back and take a passive role in this. I don't think you see that here in this text. Look what he says in Philippians 2.12. Work out your salvation. He doesn't say work for it. He says work it out. That is, make, make it very clear that your salvation is at work in your life. Think through the implications. Live it out with fear and trembling. For it is God who works within you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. So we notice on the one hand, God, we need His help. He's helping us. He's working in us. We're not doing this on our own. But we also notice that we are responsible to put to death those sinful habits. We're responsible for uh, taking on those character traits and new habits of holiness that are different than our before Christ days, B.C. days. We're to grow in holiness. And so I conclude this section of these expectations with a quote from biblical counselor, J. Adams. In your notes, you'll see this quote. He says this, God will not do for you what he expects of you. God will not do for you what he expects of you. So this is a time where we have to what? We have to step up. We have to be involved. We have to think about in, in, uh, taking specific actions in our life and not just saying, Eh, somebody else is going to take care of it, or I don't need to deal with this because I'm beyond all that. So now let's talk about, in this text, the important concept of realigning our motivations. Because we can be committed to doing something, but if we're doing it for the wrong reason, hmm, I'm not sure that's going to be a good thing. So notice in this text, and there's a number of texts in Scripture I could point you to, Ephesians 4, we're looking at that, Colossians 3, I want to urge you to reread that text, which Keith read for us earlier. What a fascinating parallel passage with Ephesians 4. Colossians 3, Ephesians 4. Just, I would urge you to uh, write that down on a sheet of paper and look at all the comparisons uh, of those two things. It's fascinating. Uh, but you find phrases like this, chapter 4, verse 1 of Ephesians. I, therefore... The prisoner of the Lord entreats you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. He's basing that, therefore, with the, what he said earlier in chapter 3. Verse 17, this I say, therefore, 417, I affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer just as unbelievers also walk in the futility of their mind. Based on what he said before, I'm telling you, he says, it doesn't make any sense. This is the way now you should start living. In Colossians 3, 5, uh, Paul says, When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, you will also be revealed with Him in glory. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to all sorts of sin patterns. Put them all aside, he says. In verse 12 of Colossians 3, As those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion and kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. So here's a key thought here. It is imperative that we understand why we are to put on these new habits, these new holy choices and behaviors and character traits. 
as children of God. Why do we do it? Well, all of us live out of our hearts. That's what Proverbs 4 says. And so our motives reveal what we're living for. Our motives reveal what, what drives us, what we really treasure. And for some of us, apart from gospel motives, we're going to develop what could be called hollow, holy habits. And this is a real danger around people who have been around Christianity for a while or who are religious people in general. Because the danger is we can slip into moralism. And moralism is when we as people who feel rather self-reliant, we, we, we feel pretty confident about ourselves, our abilities, and we, we are people who are confident about um, the fact that we have uh, sort of summarized everything that God wants us to do with a couple little principles, and so that's what we focus on. And, and as long as we avoid doing those awful sins that wicked people do, as long as we avoid those things, then we look at ourselves as, hey, I've come a ways here. And then when we get into affliction, we get into hard times, we get into trials, then we begin in our thinking to say, wait a minute, God, I've been doing this, and I did this, and I no longer do that, and this is what I get? That is the mindset of a moralist. I do, therefore I deserve. I do, therefore I deserve. Let's be careful of that. That's not what he's talking about here at all. Because what, who were the moralists in Jesus' day? They were the Pharisees, right? And Jesus had so much to say about them, but what were they like? They had all kinds of practicing moral habits, right? We know in the Scripture that they prayed every day. That's more than some of us do. And they gave money to the poor. And they also uh, were very careful in fasting every so often, more than what many of us do. Quite commendable in, on one level, but what's the problem? The problem was their underlying motives. Why did they do all those things? What motivated them? If you read Matthew chapter 6, verse 1, Jesus says the reason was selfish reason, to be seen of men. They wanted to be noticed. They did the right things for the wrong reason. And they were trying to earn their righteousness before God. Now I'm wondering if there are some of us here who, when it comes to these kinds of challenges, to encourage us to live a holy life, some of us begin to push back and we say, eh, to be honest with you, I've sort of lost the joy of all these holy habits, like reading the Bible consistently and praying on a regular basis, of trying to make sure I watch what I'm saying and I actually try to minister to people with my words and build them up. And You know, I don't know, I, I feel like, things are expensive you know I don't I don't have the joy of giving my money to other people in need around me as much as I used to and and uh, I don't really have a desire to give my time to others I got lots going on here in my life I wonder if some of us are following rituals religious rituals and we're doing so because our parents told us this is what you need to do this is what we ought to do this is what our family is supposed to be doing is it the reason that you pursue habits of holiness is because you want people to think of you as a respectable Christian? Why do we do it? The truth is, God calls us to pursue holy habits for one reason, out of gospel gratefulness. Gospel gratefulness, what do we mean? Well, turn to Romans 12.1. If you, if you have your Bible there still open or you can go to that screen, 
Pull up Romans 12.1. If you've never memorized this verse, you ought to memorize it because it is a, it's a humdinger. It's a good one that will help you in many levels, particularly in this topic that we're talking about here today. Romans 12.1 starts off with this powerful, profound phrase. I urge you, therefore. Therefore what? That's the bridge to everything he said leading up to this point. I urge you in light of everything I've written in this book so far, that's 11 chapters, by the mercies of God to do what? Present your bodies to God as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto Him. Why would I do that? In light of the mercies of God. That's gospel gratefulness. In light of how gracious God has been to provide a Savior to you, because you cannot, and I have not, and will never keep all of the standards of God perfectly, we have got a Savior who's done it for us, and He died in our place to remove our punishment from us. And therefore, He says, the motive to surrender our hands, to surrender our ears, to surrender our minds, to surrender our tongues to God, to surrender our feet and what we do and where we go, we surrender that to God out of a thankfulness, a deep sense of appreciation for the grace and mercy that have been lavished on us by Christ. That's why we offer ourselves to God. Colossians 3.12 picks this up too. It's amazing how Paul is consistent in how he does this. He talks a lot about what God has done for us in Christ, and then he comes to verse 12 and he says what? He links together the idea of putting off our old sinful habits and putting on holy habits now out of our hearts. Why? Because God's gracious work through Christ has what? He's chosen us by God. We are the chosen of God, and we've been wholly set apart unto Him, and we're dearly loved by God because of Christ. So Paul's logic is this. Since we enjoy unbelievably wonderful privileges in the gospel and we are the objects of God's amazing, steadfast love, we are set apart, we belong to God forever and ever. He'll never walk away from us. He's committed to us eternally in Christ. He says that those truths ought to overflow in a sense of gratitude and amazement in our hearts, gratefulness and motivating us to not only stop doing evil things, but to now enjoy living in a way that pleases God, that delights Him, that makes Him indeed appreciative of our response of gratitude. And so here's this. Holy habits are best done out of hearts that overflow from amazement about grace. I'm going to say that again. Holy habits are best done out of hearts that overflow with being amazed by grace. So there are gospel imperatives, right? Commands to do things, but they are always rooted in what? Gospel declarations. God has done this for us in Christ, therefore we're going to respond in this way. That's what you see throughout the New Testament. And so I have for you a, a quote in your notes from another biblical counselor, Elise Fitzpatrick, I commend her to you. And she has this wonderful quote. She says, Only the extravagant love shown us in the gospel has the power to draw us away 
from other loves. Because there's, let's be honest, we all love so many other things other than God. But, he, but she's saying that the only thing to draw us away from those loves is this power of the gospel and the love that we receive through the gospel. And she goes on to say, the beauty of God's grace makes everything else seem listless by comparison. So I would just say this one question. If you're here today and you say, how do I know if I'm a Christian? Well, how do we know if you're a Christian? I would say one question is, do you have a love for God? Do you have a love for God in your heart? Is your heart just amazed and wanting to show your, your surrender to God, your willingness to say, Lord, I give you myself because you are so amazed by his love for you in the gospel? That's one of the ways that you can begin to see if the Holy Spirit has changed your heart is if you have a love for God, that love is a response to his love for you. Let's see how this works out then. If we start applying these things to our life, what does that mean? If I understand this idea of a, a heart that's gospel gratitude, that's my motivation responding, as a Christian then, I need no longer live for the approval of other people. Why is that? Because God approves of me. God already loves me. And therefore, since the gospel has showered me with undeserved favor, my heart now desires for other people to also learn to appreciate God and His love. I want them to see how wonderful my Heavenly Father is. And so because my Heavenly Father never lies, He never is dishonest, that my Heavenly Father always speaks the truth, He never deceives anyone, then I want others to say what? I'm glad to follow the pattern of my Heavenly Father because I know that I appreciate that's the way He deals with me. So I don't need to embellish the truth. I'm secure in Christ. And when those awkward times come, I'll just tell the truth. And so be it. Things happen. It's difficult. It's awkward. But I don't need to be somebody that I'm not. I'm going to try to live out who I am in Christ. I choose to be honest. To stop lying is a characteristic of my life. Since God in the Gospels adopted me, He's made me His dearly owned, His dearly loved child by faith, I can speak truthfully with other people around me and I could keep my promises and therefore I'm trying to show that the, my heart has been changed. Why? Because God deals with me that way and because I want to be sure that when I'm speaking the truth, I realize that when I'm speaking truth, I'm speaking it to my brothers and sisters, my fellow believers. So we need to clarify our expectations. We need to realign our motivations as to why we're doing these things. Because if you don't get those two things straight, it seems to me this whole third point will never really fly. That brings me then again to the third point of applying to our lives the truth of God. Now I'm one of many, many people, millions of people, who have sat through a Weight Watchers um, session in the local Weight Watchers uh, office. And I have sat there and I've listened to the fellow who's very motivational speaker and he himself has lost all this weight and he's telling us about how our uh, how we can do the same and so you sit there and he's got a number of strategies about how to lose weight and so he says things like use a smaller plate right you don't use the Italian big platters that we used to use when we were growing up you know you shrink it down to this little dessert size 
microscopic little plate about this that won't even fit a piece of meat on it. But anyway, so you use a smaller plate. That's tough to do. And then you limit your portions. They tell you how to make sort of this is what you ought to be aiming for. Give you some things to help you remember that. Then I'll talk about keep track of what you eat. You know, oh yeah, the other day I, I ate at the closing exercise. They're giving little uh, snacks and I ate an ice cream sandwich. And uh, I hadn't even had lunch yet. So I had lunch and then I'm thinking, okay, I'm ready for dessert. My wife said, you had an ice cream sandwich. I'm like, oh, forgot. That's right, I did. You don't even remember what we eat. So you write that down. Eat more fruits and vegetables. Eat whole grains. I mean, da, 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 da. Lots of practical things, right? Now, you can sit there, and I've done that, listening to the lecture, easy, man. Anybody can do this. Sit there and go, oh, yeah, mm -hmm, okay, that's a good idea. I like that. Mm -hmm, okay. What's challenging is what? Putting those directives into practice. It's the people who put it into practice are what? People who lose weight. It's easy to be hearers of the word. But it's something else when you get down to how do I take the word and think it through to when it's actually making a difference in my life. To be a doer of the word is not easy. It requires thought. It requires changed way of thinking. It requires effort on our part, prayer, deliberation. And it requires breaking these old habits in our life that we have to think through. Why do I do this? When do I do it? Catch ourselves doing it and replacing it with new habits of holiness. Now, let's talk about habits for a minute. We all have habits. Let's be honest. Everybody's got habits, right? Some of them are good. Some are not so good. But habits are this pattern of behavior that we learn, something so familiar to us that it becomes almost automatic, right? So... The difference was between when you learn to drive a car, you're a nervous wreck. You know, I got to do this, I got to blinker, I got to do this, I got to you know, look behind the mirror, I got to look over. You're like 16 things going on and you're like a nervous wreck, right? And now if you've driven for a number of years, you don't think about any of those things consciously and say, oh, I got to put my foot on the brake pedal now. You know, we don't think about the individual steps you take. Same thing with swimming. When you first start swimming, they got to give you instructions on every little thing you do, right? If, you, if I were to fall in a, a big uh, pond or a swimming pool now, yeah, I don't have to sit there and consciously say, okay, i got to start moving my hands. I'm going to tread water here. i got to move my feet at the same time. Yeah, I don't think those things, right? It's a habit. Tying your shoe. You're a little kid, right? You had to sit there and all those little steps. You do it without even thinking about it now. So we all have habits. Now, habits are good. It's good that you're able to do things without having to think about every little step. The challenge becomes what? Is the, the habits that we bring over as unbelievers that were natural part of us is what we have to really focus on undoing those things. For example, as an unbeliever, the habit was when somebody hit you, hit them back and hit them harder. Right? That was just automatic. That was the response we made. Didn't have to think about it. That's what we do. When somebody criticizes you, you get right back in their face and criticize and point out some major fault in their life. And when someone mistreats you, then you rehearse that wrong in your mind, you play it over and over and over, and you keep thinking about that for a long time, and you hold a grudge and nurse that grudge, 
and let resentment build up in your heart because that was absolutely outrageous what they did to you. And that's just the way we responded. It was a habit. But as a believer, the gospel empowers us. It motivates us to respond in new ways. Instead of living a life that is feeling-oriented, based on our emotional feelings at the time, we begin to shift in our orientation in our lives where we are truth-oriented, where we are holiness-oriented, where we are righteousness-oriented in how we respond to things around us. That's a process now. That doesn't happen instantaneously. But pleasing Christ involves retraining our minds. That's why he talks in Romans 12.1, right? The renewing of your minds. That is, we begin to think God's, God's thoughts. Because the more you have rehearsed somebody's offending you and somebody doing something wrong and you just are mulling it over and mulling it over and you think about it, oh, I can't believe it. And you're just, you stay, you stay resentful and you let it go on and on and on and on. If you're in the scriptures and if the word of God is in your heart and mind, it's calling you to what? Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Don't let things go on and on and on and on and on. Unresolved issues of anger. Because then it becomes sinful anger. And so a person who used to, let's say, shoplift, as Paul says here in his thinking through of practical problems that arise in people's lives, if you're used to taking things that don't belong to you, he said, it's not enough just to stop doing that. That's a reflection, by the way, of a heart that's full of greed, a heart that's lazy, you don't want to work for things, you just want to grab it, whatever you need at the moment. He says, instead, the gospel says it's not enough just to stop stealing and make restitution. Yes, you need to do that. I wonder how many of us have done that, by the way. Have you taken the steps to go and make restitution of something you did wrong? You stole something years ago? You need to make that right. I, I, I did that in my life. I'll talk about that some other time. Uh, boy, what a freeing thing to, to, take, to make that restitution. And then instead of just stopping that, then you, he says, work hard. Get a job. Make your own money. And then make it in such a way that you realize God has blessed you. You learn to be content. And then you have a desire to give it to other people in need. That's the sign that the gospel has really begun to change your heart. When is a thief no longer a thief? When he's working hard and he desires to give his hard-earned money to other people in need because nobody made him do it. That's the power of the gospel, to change you on the inside. So, instead of blowing up when I get angry, which some of us have had a habit of doing, we just have explosive anger. We say and do things that are outrageous and out of control and cause all kinds of damage and relationally everywhere. With God's help and gospel gratitude, we now, at the moment when I get angry, I immediately start praying, Lord, help me. This is really ticking me off, and I've got to think before I say something here. And you're in tune with the fact that you know, God, you need his help. And so you deal with the problems right away instead of becoming resentful for a long time and letting it drag on and on and just completely become a train wreck. It's interesting to see how Paul talks so practically. He says, instead of rattling off disgusting, rotten language, he says, I'm now motivated to speak things that are going to, I've been meditating on things that I'm going to build up the people around me. I'm going to speak truth in their life and make a difference in them. And on and on it goes. Let me conclude with a couple questions. Here's a question for you. Ask yourself this. Has Christ, how has Christ treated you? How has Christ treated me? Has Jesus blasted me 
with filthy words, curse words, shaming words? Has Christ remained bitter with me, holding up in my face what I did wrong in the past, never letting me off the hook? Has Christ wrongfully ripped me off? Has he taken from me what was really not his? Ever? No, 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 a thousand times no. And you could keep on that list like that. He forgave me. He became poor and laid aside his glory, then laying down his life that I might become, what, rich in righteousness in him. He's done just the opposite. And so here's the key. If I and if you or if any of us are ever going to have habits of holiness, they are to be habits of love that we learn from Christ, our amazing, gracious Savior. May those be found in us by His grace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we bow before you today, we know we can't fool you, we can't pull anything over on you. You know all about us, Lord. You know the issues going on in our hearts and our thought life. You know the issues going on in terms of our, what we say and what we're actually doing in our daily life. Lord, some of us, this has been quite challenging for us because it hits us right where we need to be addressed in our ongoing patterns of response and our need to see you change us, Lord. For some people here, Lord, they need to move from being a moralist to being a person who is a born-again child of God. And so I pray, Lord, that you would bring a sense of helpless, helplessness and humility in the heart of any of among us here today, Lord, who are proud about our record and who think we can do so well on our own that you owe us. Lord, I pray that you would turn each of those hearts toward Christ to realize how gracious, how merciful he is to those who admit they need a Savior that we are not all that. We have nothing to boast about. I pray, Lord, you would impart new life into the hearts of any and all who would come and trust in Christ and repenting of their sin this day. And Lord, for those of us who have come to Christ, I pray, Lord, you would help us to, to do that, putting off and putting on. Help us, Lord, not to just put up with bad, unholy habits in our lives. Lord, by your Spirit, convict us. Make us, we pray, with people who think differently, who have hearts and minds that have been, the Word of God is challenging us and, and pointing out areas that we need to deal with, Lord, and that we would help each other in speaking the truth of building each other up and to help pray for each other. And Lord, we pray that you would make us into people that could point of others to how wonderful you, our Heavenly Father, really are. Lord, give us hearts to do this, not out of a sense of trying to impress other people, but to do it for your glory and out of a heart of love and amazement for the grace we have in Christ. We pray you do this for the glory of your name. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.